Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out. Okay, let's do this. All right, my guest today is Paul Poey, um, CEO of Edge Wallet. Really excited to have you on the show, Paul. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Tomer. Glad to be, I believe, your first in-person guest here. Indeed, in indeed. My first yeah. in-person interview. So exciting It's always time. nicer. Always nicer being face-to-face. Totally, totally. Welcome to Tel Aviv. Oh, thanks for having me. I love being over here. Second time here. It's always a good time. Yeah, cool. So uh, to get started, Paul, would love to hear more about your background. I know you've sure. been in the crypto space for a while. I think one of the early companies. Yeah. would love to hear more about how you got involved. And, got it, got and, it. and what you did before. So before I have kind of a mixed tech background and small business background, I graduated from Berkeley in California with an electrical engineering degree, worked in Silicon Valley at uh, Chromatic Research and then NVIDIA for about seven, eight years doing 3D graphics, hardware and software. And that was my first initial passion. I found 3D graphics to be almost like a magic box. Like, how in the world does that work? How do you get such beautiful images on screen? What kind of magical math is involved behind the scenes? And so worked there, surrounded by incredibly smart and talented people, enjoyed my time there, but then left to work on small business and see what life is like on the opposite side of tech. You know, someone that uses the technology that's under the covers. Um, operated everything from a restaurant, bar, nightclub to a climbing gym and did outdoor guiding. Wow. And it felt like that brought a little bit more balance in my life. And that was all in Northern California? That was all in uh, Northern California and Southern California. Okay. All California. Yeah. Um, I live now in San Diego, so I moved yeah. from Silicon Valley to San Diego. Once you move to California, it's very difficult to it's move tough. away. It's tough. You get really soft. Yeah. You get a marshmallow and then suddenly uh, weather anywhere else in the world becomes uh, challenging. So I make sure to travel a lot to... To harden my myself a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, come here more and you'll, you'll get tougher. This isn't that hard, at least. The past, the past couple of days have been beautiful, so it hasn't hardened me too much. It's been gorgeous here in Tel Aviv, so it uh, hasn't helped in that regard. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I did that uh, you know, small business for about another 10 years and then discovered Bitcoin in 2013. And uh, How did you discover it? There was a financial blogger that I had subscribed to, and he kind of it was kind of an anti-Wall Street type of guy. He tried to zag when they zig, vice versa. Um, and he was mostly stocks right? Stock market and whatnot. And then one day he said, adding Bitcoin to my portfolio, you know, he showed all his trades and he didn't say what it was. He didn't say why he was adding it. He didn't say even how to get it. He just said, I'm adding Bitcoin. And I said, what the heck? Where is this? I logged in my E-Trade. I'm like, oh, there's no Bitcoin on my E-Trade account. And so then that required now the full dive in search, understand what is going on here. And I wasn't one of those people that read the white paper and put it down and waited a couple of years. I went straight deep down 
became the most, you know, obviously the annoying person at family parties and with the friends asking tech, telling people about Bitcoin. So immediately you could, you immediately could, I, see, I, immediately I could see the value both on the tech side and on the ideological side and disruptive side. You know, I grew up and graduated college in the early kind of days of the internet, but you know, I was too young to know what the heck to do with it. You know, it was naive, like build websites. Um, with the advent of, of crypto, I felt obviously a bit more mature, having understood what's happened in the landscape and said, yeah, I feel like I, I want to have purpose in life and actually contribute something back that the, the world can look back on and say, oh, wow, this is you know, like a milestone company or product in uh, a disruptive industry. And so by the end of 2013, early 2014, put together a team, found some bootstrap investments, co-founders and whatnot, and had launched uh, the company at that point in time. You know, and that's the first out. company you started, right? So, so technically, this is the same company. Ah, okay. Same company we had founded as Airbits Inc., which today we are technically still, you know, U, uh, U.S.-based uh, Delaware Corporation, you know, standard company, Airbits Inc. Uh, we rebranded as Edge a couple of years ago and also pivoted the use case of the core technology that we've built. What right? triggered the rebrand to Edge? So a few different things. So number one, Airbits was really... Uh, focused around payments. They wanted to be like the Venmo of crypto, uh, merchant adoption, you know, PayPal over to merchants. I think I was inspired by the, the PayPal app at the time had a merchant direction where you could use PayPal right. to get merchants, um, had a simplified interface to be able to create, create and backup keys. It really wanted to feel like what you're used to in mobile financial applications. Um, but obviously, as we know uh, in crypto, and as we were talking about earlier, right, payments and merchants isn't really what people are using it for. It ended up not being a use case, at least for today. I'm confident it will be in the future, um, but we'll need a much, much higher market cap and better stability before we get there. And so the, the pivot was twofold. Number one, there was an incoming demand from other apps to use our key management. The way we do it, in, in, we were doing Airbits and an Edge, you know, was to not have to show the user their private key, but make sure they still own it and fully control it. No one else holds their money. Um, and, you know, the, with the explosion of the DAP ecosystem, you know, the DeFi movement uh, um, and uh, any other use cases for, uh, for DAP, social media, hedging, whatnot, uh, all of those are apps that need key management. And so that incoming demand to have that made us kind of split apart our technology. We said, okay, let's build a platform that other apps can use for key management, client-side encrypted data. And then let's use that for our own app, but now rebuild the app as a non-custodial exchange. Yeah, and that's how you define Edge today. Like if I ask Correct. you, what is Edge? Edge is a non-custodial exchange. Buy, sell, I thought it's trade. like more like a wallet. So the wallet word is very interesting. This is probably going to be an interesting insight for your listeners is that if you really think about that word wallet, like the definition of that word, it was very simple pre-crypto. Like it was a piece of leather that you put some money and credit cards in and that, and that was kind of it. The advent of crypto has almost bastardized that word. We don't know what it means anymore. It can mean anything from a piece of paper to a USB stick to a bank account that holds dollars. Like that's called a wallet now, like a Coinbase wallet is US dollar um, to a, a Venmo-like application for crypto, which is a payments-based peer-to-peer right. you know, payment application uh, to a DAP browser, right? It's just like what, install into your, your browser, this plugin that now lets these decentralized applications run and sign transactions and connect to the blockchain network to what we build, which is a decentralized or not really decentralized, but non-custodial exchange. 
And so within the landscape of the word wallet, it really is many different applications with different use cases and different interfaces for different purposes. I, I guess and what's so, confusing me a bit is when I think about exchange and maybe mm-hmm. it's just my paranoid kind of crypto hat mm-hmm. on, but um, when I think about an exchange immediately, I think, well, I shouldn't keep my funds, my, yeah, my crypto assets there, Correct. right? And if, and is think, that how you're thinking about edge? Or? Well, you think about it this way, if that's how you think about it, what about a decentralized exchange? There's... That, that you're still holding your assets. So what we like to think is the non-custodial exchange includes a decentralized exchange. And where you should not be keeping your assets is not in an exchange. You should not keep your assets on a custodial service. How do you f- define that? So, so what is a custodial and a non-custodial? Yeah. A custodial service is a, a company, typically a company, a product that holds your private keys and your funds. They have full control of your keys. They can, they can move funds at will without your permission. No, on a technical level, that's okay. much the legal level. Like legally, they're probably not supposed to, but on a technical level, they can. And that can be, and usually is a full exchange because people start there, right? People typically, when they start crypto, they have to get it. And they get it from a custodial exchange, and so they just leave the funds there. However, there like are- Like a Coinbase. Like a Coinbase, a Kraken and whatnot. But there are custodial wallets where they don't have exchange functionality. They let you send and receive, but- They still hold your funds. They still hold, fully hold your funds. And there's many out there that are very stealth about being custodial. People say, oh, you should try this or try that. And you try it and you're like, it's just, do I hold my keys here? And you look deeper and you're like, oh, actually you don't. So people have been, I think the rhetoric has been, don't leave your funds in an exchange. And I think we need to re-educate the ecosystem. Right, saying, not your keys, not your money. Yeah, don't hold your funds in a custodial service because exchanges can be non-custodial and wallets can be custodial. So that's an important differentiator. Okay, and there so- have been custodial wallets that were hacked and lost people's money. Yeah, absolutely. But no, we're not exchanges. Absolutely. No, we're completely not exchanges at all. So on Edge, basically you don't hold the private keys of the users. Correct. The users and fully control and hold their own keys. Edge not only doesn't see the private key, it doesn't even see the public addresses. So we don't see balances or transactions that users make on the blockchain networks. The phone of the user connects directly to the blockchain networks independent of Edge. So, and there's, how does it work? So, correct me if I'm wrong, I think on Edge you have to, there's a username and a password, yep. right? And can you yeah, exactly. walk me through kind of? So, uh, using kind of standard off-the-shelf cryptography, we take usernames and passwords and we, we create a very strong hash, a cryptographic hash of them. And that's what's used to encrypt the user's actual private keys. The private keys are generated on their phone, on the device, and then they're encrypted with a strong hash of the username and password. And then that encrypted bundle is sent over to our server. So the server sees nothing more than blobs of encrypted data. They don't have it. We and servers don't have any idea who owns the blobs of encrypted data, names, email, phone numbers, addresses. None of that is ever sent to Edge. Um, as well as we don't know the value that's stored on there because we don't see any public addresses either. And we don't have obviously the credentials to decrypt the data. Only the user has that. And so we're able to build an interface that feels very familiar to the user that is accustomed to once again a PayPal or a Square or Venmo and whatnot without giving up that fundamental core value proposition of crypto, which is you hold and transact your own money without a third party. And, you know, in this world of crypto and different currencies, you start hearing the terms like maximalism, Bitcoin, Ethereum maximalist. I like to think of myself and our company as a uh, hold your keys maximalist. Hold your own funds maximalist because no matter what cryptocurrency you believe in, uh, guaranteed it won't achieve its goal. It won't achieve whatever goal you've, you've built for your cryptocurrency. It won't achieve its goal if everyone is just using custodial services. 
then you definitively might as well just go to a PayPal system, Venmo, and rewind any use case of, of crypto. So that's where we stand as far as like our kind of maximalist point of view. Got it. So so if if a hacker, you know, hacks, and let's hope it never happens, but if a hacker successfully hacks um, Edge, what happens? What happens is they their, their equivalent analogy is they walk into a gym locker room with millions of lockers that they can't see into and they would have to guess the combination to each one, one by one. Each one of the lockers. Each one of the lockers, one by one, to see if there's even anything in it. It's almost like trying to mine for money, except you don't know what the reward is and you don't know how long it's going to take because each one is literally cryptographic brute forcing in order to find out where all of that is. And if an attacker were to get in, they would have to do that before we could detect it and announce to users, you should remove your funds and then create new accounts you know, on a new system where that hasn't been compromised. So nothing is impossible to hack. Like that's, we fundamentally state that claim Nothing is 100%. The real question is, are you building a system that is that has aligned incentives? And aligned incentives such as, you know, if, uh, does an attacker even want to get access to this system because of the amount of energy and work that would be required to get into the different accounts? Or would they want to go after a more centralized honeypot where it might be harder to get in, but once they get in, they get everything. Right, all the locals are yeah, open. All the keys are there. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a key part of security people forget about is they keep thinking about the absolute security, like how absolutely hard is it to get in? They forget about the, the effort to the reward ratio. Right. And that's the most important thing. And uh, Andreas Antonopoulos was giving a talk at a great uh, security conference in Vegas last year. I was, I was there, chatted with him. And he said, you know, with custodial services, you know, easily they could have a million users and they could hold a million times more money than the average individual person. But they have almost no capability of putting a million times better security than an individual person. Like, you, it, you're impossible to scale that. At a certain point, you've kind of done everything you, you can, but you're not going to be a million times better. But there's still a million times bigger of a reward than getting access to the individual. And that's that ratio is what makes crypto comp compelling in the first place is because the fact that we can hold our own funds and the effort involved in getting access to a single person versus the reward is you know so much higher, like a high effort for, for much lower reward. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you know what, what hits all the headlines whenever there is a hack, it, it's always the headlines of uh, a centralized service. I just don't see headlines of non-custodial services getting compromised. They, they don't really make the news because uh, it generally speaking, isn't happening. The one thing that is happening in the non-custodial world, of course, is mismanagement of keys, like the user themselves losing it, not backing it up. And that's where products like edge come in, like making it much more forgiving, easy, familiar, um, and less intimidating. So that's kind of our, our take on the landscape of how you assess security. It's not, linear zero to hundred it's really dependent on a, a lot of different factors and a lot of threat models that might come in which ones do you want to protect against because they're the bigger threat and which ones you don't and then of course most important is the incentive model what's the incentive of, of an attacker and um, so that makes a lot of sense i guess then kind of the mystery in my mind is um Given everything you just said, why do people keep using centralized exchanges? Oh, why easy. is almost, what, like 
percent of you know the volume of trading right now is on centralized exchanges right. so volume of trading right. is different from the holding of the fund yeah fair. So admittedly the volume of but trading, many people you know right, trade there right. and keep them there. there exactly so twofold and we're trying to fix one of these things number one the friction to trade and hold your own keys is incredibly high so I, I was like at the uh, the Israeli Bitcoin Association uh, Bitcoin embassy earlier um, last night and I asked them like so what do you recommend to people and said okay well yeah you know you could buy at the ATM go to this service and, and buy go to bits of gold go to this exchange but we tell them to make sure to take out their money and if you look what that feels like actually do it yourself it's okay create your wallet and back up your wallet and edge it's username and password then you go to the service and you create your account email password and you then uh, do your KYC which you know we expect will always have to happen then send money to it like fiat wait for that to settle because that could take a little while and at some point you then have to remember oh the money's there log back in uh, create a trade and that could be that could take a little while as well and you have to remember log back in uh, withdraw your money which means go to your your you know offline wallet right and then copy a public address go to the website paste the address ask for a withdrawal that's to do like, you know one trade now you want to sell you go into the website you create an order to sell they give you uh, a qr code and you have to you actually don't even create the order you have to deposit crypto bitcoin into it right get a qr code you send it you wait three confirmations you know hopefully you come back you know an hour later then you create the order okay and then or order might take a little while to execute you come back again later and then you withdraw into your bank account that is the user experience to quote unquote do a buy and a sell using an order matching exchange and a non-custodial wallet so what does the average person do just leave the money there it's so inconvenient and this is where i i fundamentally think the industry is going to move towards because people are more and more hearing just like you have like the value of holding your own keys from a security and some degree in ideology and in the future from a utility point of view but we can connect the two we can make it where why do i have to send money and wait and then create an order and then wait and then withdraw we just tie all that together integrate the exchange and the wallet into one and once you've done that you've basically created a non-custodial exchange makes perfect sense so yeah. uh, you're saying one issue is just the friction you just described yeah, friction is huge um, is there another i think you said like those so there's there's an aspect of trading volume that's created by traders the people that are day trading and they're not going to be able they're, they're not going to want to use a non-custodial exchange right they're going to want fancier orders automated order types you know limit orders uh, stop limit orders market orders and so I do finally think that's going to stay in the centralized exchanges but those people are already risk takers they're high risk they know that part of the risk is leaving their money on the exchange but the vast majority of funds lost in the Mt. Gox hack weren't trader money those are just people that bought some Bitcoin and left it there those are the people that ideally yes are using the non-custodial exchanges so while trade volumes may continue to be high because even if you move the funds off to a non-custodial exchange like edge it's still going to flow through the exchange so it retains the trade volumes right they still experience the same trade volume but at least uh, the holding of the funds doesn't stay there and i think that's the most valuable thing that way if an exchange gets compromised the only funds that that are compromised are the traders and not the rest of the world and the traders are let's take a stab feel free to agree or disagree but one percent of the population if not less is what you call a day active trader a daily or weekly trader they might have they might do the most amount of trading but they're a small amount of the world 
And if we can take the 99% of the world off the centralized exchanges, we limit the systemic risk of crypto. We limit the kind of security risk of crypto. And then more importantly, come hopefully five, eight, 10 years when crypto enters its utility era, we're actually using it and transferring value. We are able to from the non-custodial solutions because in all honesty, the custodial solutions are some of the worst in the utility era. Um, and that's another topic to kind of go into, but I've experienced that when you try to use crypto, like actually send people money, if you do it from within a custodial service to, you know, another wallet, you know, another exchange, that experience breaks down heavily. Transactions end up being very, very slow, especially as volumes start to go up. So what's the, um, where should users hold their crypto assets? Hardware right. wallets or like what's the really best? in my take, I think hardware has been um, oversold as okay. uh, a requirement for crypto people to hold their assets on. Uh, there's, if you look at the, the main reason people lose funds, it kind of falls in two buckets. They mismanage keys or they leave it on a custodial service. So hardware wallets don't really solve the mismanagement of key problem, but they introduce the complexity that makes people just say, I'll just leave it with a custodial service, <laughs> you know, writing this thing down. Where do I put this? Where do I put this physical device? Especially as humankind starts entering, you know, the millennials and next generation, they're more transient. I, don't, I think half a dozen people I've talked to in the conference today, when I ask them where do they live, they go, I don't have a home. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> I don't have a home. And I'm imagining when I was backpacking through Europe, what if that was just generally life? Having physical something on me that is my money and my wealth kind of scared me. You lose the backpack, does that mean you've lost your, your life savings? Instead, digital security that could be distributed across multiple parties through multi-sig or just good you know, encryption-based software has proven to actually be very secure, especially on mobile devices, which are getting more and more secure by the day. And that, if, if implemented well, where you hide the complexity of key management and you make it more forgiving to the user, strikes that better balance of not intimidating people on key management. So they decide to just leave it on custodial exchanges and wallets, but also makes it where they do own the keys so that the, the attackers, uh, you know, they're not the low hanging fruit for attackers to go after. Right. And if it's forgiving, they don't mismanagement as well. They're able to recover keys. They lose their phone. You don't have to write down a backup. You want to solve those two problems as opposed to creating uh, or contributing to those two problems. Yeah. So hardware wallets, I feel like, uh, contribute to the, the main two reasons why people lose money. But they're solving a problem that isn't why people are losing money. Yeah, right? mismanagement of keys, I feel, yeah, is especially like a huge issue. Right. Yeah, I exactly. think those are... I've seen a report recently about like how many, I mean, those obviously estimates, but how many of, you know, the Bitcoins Fun's in lost. circulation, no, even like yeah. Bitcoins in circulation, right? Out of the, what, mm. eight, 18 million or so that are in circulation yeah. right now, you know, a significant chunk of them is considered lost. Yeah. Considered lost. Yeah, like two to three million I've heard is high. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, and so. now we don't know exactly, right? Yeah, Maybe no. it's Satoshi and exactly. we don't know who Satoshi and, you know, Exactly. Oh, who she is. But then um, you definitely hear a lot of news reports when, you know, a significant amount gets 
you know, lost, like the, the hard drive goes into the, the yeah. dumpster. And the, yeah. Well, and just recently there was this exchange, I forgot the name, where the founder died and apparently only supposedly, the founder. Yeah, yeah supposedly. Died. Who knows, supposedly. right? That's that's a combination of almost both. <laughs> it's, either, it's either mismanagement of keys or, or the centralized exchange getting kind of hacked internally. Right? It's almost both problems in one, ironically. And that's so, true. So you're, you're, to answer your question, and you said, well, how should people hold the keys? Number one, just get it into some mechanism by which you hold them yourself, right? That's the first and foremost. Start so non-custodial. So just non-custodial in any way, shape, or form, first and foremost. And then second to that, as you start to grow the holdings, um, start looking at uh, the device security as well. So t- typically speaking, mobile is more secure than desktop. So holding it on a mobile device um, where you do hold the keys and it's not obviously hooked onto your SMS uh, phone number, which can be ported and whatnot. But, you know, you've got the keys inside of the mobile device. And why is mobile more secure than a desktop? Uh, it's more sandboxed is the, the kind of the technical term, meaning applications that run on the device don't have access to other applications data. And so um, case in point on your computer, you might save some things into like a documents folder. Well, that is accessible by all apps on the computer. And it's, it's very simple and also expected to install applications that have higher privilege. Many require that. A lot of the applications that are on the top bar of your computer that do special things, synchronized directories and whatnot. Those have privileged access and can access data all throughout the, the system. Some can even access memory throughout the system. So it's really this, this concept on mobile of applications being kind of in their own little box and uh, they run all on their own. They have limited ability to share between themselves. Um, and so even if a, uh, an app, and there's been reports of this, which is why people get misled. Here's why people are misled on mobile devices. There's reports of, oh, malware, Bitcoin malware found on mobile phones. And everyone gets scared. What does malware do? Well, when you run it, it mines Bitcoin and it doesn't go to you. <laughs> but nowhere there does that compromise a wallet you might have on your phone. Right. What it's doing is just running, running in the background, burns your battery, and it mines Bitcoin on your phone. And it goes to somebody else. But it's running that in its own little sandbox. Interesting. Right. But headlines, it doesn't look good. Right. It doesn't sound good. And so that helps sell the narrative of hardware wallets. When yeah. Really, it has nothing to do with the, the true kind of security model of, of mobile phones. And so, you know, and of course, nothing is impossible to hack. Once again, you can add layers and layers of security. I foresee that the, the long term future of consumer holding of crypto will be a combination of really good mobile security at the individual key level to secure one private key and then multi-sig to distribute the security across multiple entities, possibly you and a third party single key custodian that co-signs for you. So that uh, that makes sense, but I guess that kind of, correct me if, if I'm wrong, I think you're, what you're referring to is like the consumer side of things. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. What about institution? Got it. Got it. If you know, if you're managing large, if you're like, more, admittedly, that is where that is where should they steal hardware? Money? Yeah, hardware and and or very strong multi-sig really comes into play because you, institutions should be able to hire dedicated, well-trained IT departments to manage the keys, right? To have uh, processes in place on how keys are generated and how they're backed up and who controls them within the company. So I imagine as a a classic example of what would be a functional use case is in an institution, the top seven executives and an IT manager all generate a private key and it requires three or four 
keys that only those people have to sign and, and move funds. Each of them backs up their key just in case as well. Here's the process to back up. You can mandate that at the enterprise level, which is impossible to mandate at the consumer level. Right? So I think companies, enterprises, yes, you end up using very rich multi-sig with processes in place, just like you're used to when you work at a company, you have the policies. You have the security policies, like at our company, we have a security policy on um, uh, everyone's account to their email, to the cloud servers, how the keys are generated, minimum password requirements. That's an enterprise level uh, process. At the consumer level, nearly impossible to do that at scale to 6 billion people. And hence why I don't recommend hardware and other, you know, you write down your key kind of solutions. But sure, enterprise, yes. Either get hardware or get really good multi-sig. And actually multi-sig to me is far better than hardware because at least with multi-sig, you're also protecting yourself against um, loss of a key. Right? One person can die and lose the key. Well, great, you've got other people to back it up. I mean, even if that person just left the company. Yeah, left the company, right? exactly. Then- exactly. So multi-sig, I think, is far, far more important than, than hardware in the case of enterprise. Hardware basically just gives you a little additional security on the individual key level. But if you've already got good security distributed, then in any one key doesn't have to be that secure. Right, right, right. makes sense. Yeah. And um, fast forward two, three, mm. five years from now. Yeah. Do you expect more people to use these non-custodial solutions and, I think, and I think move the, away from? Um, more people, yes. More total funds, no. So I think if you took the total market cap of crypto, in four years, I expect that a higher percentage will be custodial first. And that's because we're getting everyone's, and it, it's a little frustrating, but at the same time, like, okay, it's it's a weird, you know, a seesaw in my mind. I'm torn, rocking a hard place because on one side, you get all the institutions coming in through services like BACT and EFTs that might get launched and money flows in, price of Bitcoin goes up. Uh, but at the same time, that's, you know, a higher percentage of our market cap going into custodial solutions, which is a systemic risk, security risk. Uh, so I think short term, that unfortunately is going gonna, is gonna to happen. Long term, though, as generations change and more of the people that have only ever used an E-Trade account, or especially the only pe- the people that have only ever called their, their broker, like, you know, I'm gonna call it really old, but this is definitely kind of old school way of like, I just have my personal Literally broker, picked up the pick phone, up the and, phone. <laughs> and dialed the number. Exactly. You pick up the phone and dial the number and your broker says, Hey, I recommend, <laughs> I recommend these stocks, blah, blah, blah. And, oh yeah. Yes. We're going to add some Bitcoin. Are you okay with that? Um, as those people start to know, pass down to the younger, uh, and the younger are more open and capable of dealing with key management. And have never had any trade account, have never had any of those uh, legacy services, then they can do the migration. And they're also the people that talk to the crypto influencers versus talking to their broker. And the crypto influencers, I don't, I can't think of a single one at at the tens of meetups that I've been to around the world. Not a single one will say, "Oh, go use this exchange and just leave it there." Yeah, not yeah. a single one. No, no, absolutely. What's your vision for Edge? Like, where do you go from here? I know you've been working on more and more um, integration. Correct, correct. Right, and you're adding support for more and more tokens. Right, right. How do you see the company evolving moving forward? Got it. So there's the short-term crypto-focused. There's about two different stages in our crypto land. Okay. And then a third being branching outside of crypto, which we're very excited about. Interesting. So the first stage is also obviously the speculative role of exchange functionality. And we are partnering with exchanges 
know, as the back end of our, of our app to provide fiat on ramps and crypto to crypto. We have uh, eight crypto to crypto exchanges built into our app now that find you the best price liquidity across all of them. And then seven fiat to crypto exchanges, including two that are here from Israel. So yeah. that means when I log in and I want to buy certain say so like Bitcoin. let's say I want to buy Bitcoin, you basically already pull kind of the best out of the eight. So the eight are crypto to crypto. So say you wanted to, uh, so take, let's say take yeah. a stable coin and buy a Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. It'll actually go and find the best rate across eight different options, including DEXs. So it'll already, so if a DEX can service it, which right now the DEXs we connect to only do ether and tokens. So if you want to do ether to die, it'll search seven, uh, uh, more centralized exchanges, right? And then also search uh, two to three DEXs to find best rate and then present you the best one. When you do fiat to crypto, we're not really doing searching best rate because that's very um, specific to the payment mechanism you want, where you live, what kind of bank transfer, but we connected seven different options that you know provide US bank transfer, credit cards, Apple Pay, uh, Swish in Sweden uh, and other transfer mechanisms in Australia. And I do that via Edge. Inside of Edge. It's all all integrated in Edge. So step one, we want to be integrated with a lot of the kind of best-in-class fiat on-ramp backend services all around the world. So it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to think, well, which exchange do I go to in this country? Blah, blah, blah. I want to recommend my friend over in France. Edge. It's got you covered. And we're going to be one of the few global exchanges because you think about it, all the custodial ones are very regional. They'll be very global. Um, and then number two, uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we've got this SDK for key management and it, and it was built out because of the demand and the kind of the DAP space. We don't market that much at all, but we want to take the user base that we build up from non-custodial exchange services, which is obviously of high demand and say, so, you know, all these accounts can now log into the DAPs that integrate our SDK. This is a, the world's first single sign-on for encrypted private applications. So the user experience looks like this. I already have Edge on my phone and a DAP such as Augur, which is one of our partners at Decentralized Prediction Market. You launch their app and it says, you know, link your wallet or create a wallet. You click on that and you can create a username and password. That's actually an Edge account inside of Augur. Or you get a QR code and you just scan it with Edge. And then your private key for Augur, Ethereum private key, gets automatically generated, automatically encrypted, backed up, and then linked to your encrypted Edge account. And then you see your funds inside of Edge. And then you can trade Ether and tokens into that wallet, which shows up inside of Augur. So that becomes compelling now to other DAP providers to use our SDK because the, you know, what we hope are tens, if not hundreds of millions of users that we have become uh, easily onboarded onto their DAP. No extra private keys to create, no more usernames to create, just single sign-on. And this isn't a Facebook or Google single sign-on where we control all of the access. This is encrypted data passing between the user and this app, the private keys. Uh, that's kind of our phase two that we'd like to use, like leverage the, the uh, speculative era, the trader era, and the user base created from that into the utility era of dApps and potentially just simple, simplified payment wallets where Edge is the exchange, but you can single sign on into a, a Venmo, you know, social payment application that lets you just send and receive crypto. Going now further into the future, where we are really excited is, you know, we built this SDK, we built this app, we've you know, hopefully got 100 million plus users that have these 
private encrypted accounts that span multiple dApps. Well, private encrypted client-side accounts are just private keys, which are just data, the string of a little bit of data. Well, it doesn't have to be that little bit of data. What if it was the data for your documents, your spreadsheets, your photos, your personal information? Um, what if they're private keys for your identity? Now we can now start to target the non-blockchain ecosystem of just apps in general that you use to process and create you know, sensitive personal data. Okay, so how would that work? Like, so imagine having, say, Word or a competitor okay. to Word that you know it's, it can still even be cloud-based, like a Google Google Docs, and the way you log into it is using edge login or single sign-on, and now suddenly you have an account with that app, and that app, you know, you edit your document, but instead of it getting saved to the cloud where Google can see it, it gets encrypted in the browser and backed up and linked to your encrypted edge account. Now you can single sign on to a suite of private encrypted, you know, client-side encrypted applications. And we start to solve major problems that have hindered the adoption of cryptography, not cryptocurrency, cryptography. You know, and if you look at it, cryptography has existed for years, but it's been poorly adopted, especially client-side encryption. We've adopted it for SSL, for the web, but that's because the keys were invisible. It's the first and best implementation of, right. of encryption because you hide the keys. Because of cryptocurrency, companies like Edge have existed to help hide the keys of cryptocurrency. And once you do that, now you open up a world of other applications that can use cryptography where they couldn't before. Um, even secure chat applications. Because you basically handle kind of hiding better, the... Yeah, we hide the complexity of key management. So a, an example of this is a PGP. Pretty good privacy. Um, it was a protocol on top of email to do uh, message signing to prove that an email came from the right person and to encrypt it end to end so no one could see the email. Wasn't adopted. Biggest reason, key management. You know, I already have my login to my server to send email, but now I've got to figure out what to do with this private key. And then you lose it and I've lost my, my PGP key. And so I can't decrypt my friend's email. So what I do, I just send them an unencrypted email. I go, could you send that to me again? Here's my new public public key. You know, you, you solve key management, you solve it well enough, right? Just the good enough. And you now open up a world of, of cryptographic based applications. And it, it comes at a pretty good timing too, as now the world is really starting to care about privacy and realizing the compromise that we've made over the past 20 years, as we've taken this kind of Silicon Valley data aggregation model and how it's compromised, compromised us. Um, and so this is, we feel like it, we just needed this nudge and cryptocurrency gave us that nudge to build that tech. Now I can use that tech for other things. How important is the, the currency part in this? Oh, the currency part for applications is not like you don't even use a cryptocurrency for encrypting your messages or um, encrypting your word and Excel files, whatnot. The currency is important because it gave us the incentive to build the key management. That's how you monetize. Well, well, from the viewpoint of just the ecosystem, less about the modernization, it's just that, you know, it was all the cypherpunks that cared about cryptography, right? And they didn't care to build the user experience for the other 6 billion people. They're just like peers. And, and all respect to the original cypherpunks because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. But they stop at the technology. 
And that's kind of where their skill set stop, not at the deployment into the masses. Like they're missing the Steve Jobs. Like they stop at the Wozniak. <laughs> they don't have the jobs. <laughs> there wasn't the Yeah, exactly. Nice. They stop at Wozniak. You know, still much respect to Wozniak. <laughs> Both halves are necessary in our world. Um, but cryptocurrency, because it's meant to be something for the masses, not just for the cypherpunks, built by the cypherpunks, really meant for the masses and appeals to the masses because of obviously financial gain. Now we're motivated to build the better key management that everyone is comfortable with, like, like is a familiar and good user experience. Because of the currency because, part. Because, because of the currency part, exactly. Because currency is it's not a, just a cypherpunk thing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's for everyone. Because there's always this... You know, ongoing debate, right? Where people say, wait, Bitcoin or blockchain or. Uh, exactly, exactly. But to me, the currency part is super important in, in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. It, it's, it's all about the currency. When I, when I hear of, you know, DLT, private blockchain, that stuff, to me, it's like, you're just cryptography, like your digital signatures, public private key. That's, that's a just, but it's not, it's important. Like I think non cryptocurrency, non blockchain products should incorporate better cryptography, especially digital signatures, identity verification. Um, but they haven't because key, key management's been hard. So kind of circle back and to answer the question, where do I see ourselves? Uh, much like you see a, a login with Facebook and a login with Google on a bunch of different websites, we would like to see a dozen, couple dozen, three dozen key applications around the world that people are frequently using that have a stamp of approval of uh, secured by Edge. You log in with Edge, and you know that those are client-side encrypted private applications. And to get there, you basically need to build the adoption, right? I really, the reason why Facebook or Google have been so successful exactly. in adopting is because, well, everybody uses their services. Yeah, so you right? want to be adopted first for a product you build before you become a kind of a, a sign-on system, yeah. like a single sign-on for other apps. So while the tech is there to be single sign-on, we don't push it very hard yet. We take it organically as it comes. And the first Industry, you know, the first industry that will care will be the cryptocurrency world because they care a lot about keys. The traditional app world doesn't care about it so much yet. And so we're not pushing that. Right? But in time, we we predict that they will care more about it. It makes them automatically GDPR compliant. I'll say that much because they don't hold any of the data. They can't see any of the data. That's a right? big one. That's a big one. Exactly. They're just providing in your GDPR. Service. I mean, that's a big pain in the yeah. butt. Oh, yeah. And it might spread to other parts. They've kind of like set a, a, a standard there. Um, and then also individuals will start caring more. And GDPR came about because individuals complained. So that's kind of the, the long-term vision. We're very excited about that, um, but we have to hold our excitement um, because now we're still excited about cryptocurrency. <laughs> excited about one thing, hold that excitement and be excited about what is the, the today. But the currency part is super key. Key basically to create these incentives. Exactly, exactly. Create the user base incentive for developers to use the platform. Um, and obviously for today, it's a, it's a key monetization for us. How do, how do you monetize? We haven't just like it. any other exchange, you know, with exchange, there's exchange fees and we monetize in that manner as well. Got it. So we have a cut of all exchange fees that go through the application. Yeah. And is that in fiat or is that only in, in cryptocurrency? Um, it is quoted as a percentage of the total transaction amount. Most of our partners give it to us in cryptocurrency. Yeah. There's only one that will send us like fiat. Which I really wish we can get off because it's actually kind of a pain, you know, to deal with. So yeah. and we're we actually are a company that has operated very heavily in the cryptocurrency world. Like uh, our staff, since we were founded, since day one, has never been paid with fiat. We've paid in Bitcoin since day one. Wow, that's, and um, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, yeah, it's been in Bitcoin since day one, and that 
teaches us a lot about wow. a lot of people are happy they worked with your company <laughs> early you know well, early. if they held it you know once again we, we yeah quote, we quote in fiat so your salary is quoted in fiat then we pay that amount in bitcoin you know the net amount after taxes you paid people millions then <laughs> in, in today's terms well, uh, if they if they held it <laughs> if they held it if they course. held all of it they didn't have any bills or rent to pay no mortgage Sure What's the rationale for paying in 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 Bitcoin? Um, it is that if you're building a product on a on an ecosystem, you better understand its its strengths and limitations. It would almost be uh, I can imagine if PayPal didn't didn't if people at PayPal didn't use PayPal to pay each other back for lunch. Mm-hmm. You're not using the product. You're not and there's two levels of the product. But one product is Edge, our own application. So we actually use Edge itself to pay people. And many of them are receiving it in edge and anything that we might run into network issues, either issues in our own application, whether it be UI network connectivity, whatnot, or issues in the underlying protocol of Bitcoin itself, um, you know, transactions, fees, segwit addresses versus not any of those, we also get to discover. So to us, it's discovery of, and, and almost like you call it testing, but it's, you know, you got to use the network to know its strengths and limitations and what to tweak. And so that's why we do it for every opportunity we have to use crypto we do so we know what it will be like for other people to use it you got to use it yourself yeah yeah now i can imagine though it's pretty complicated with the volatility right so what like every oh, month yeah, you have to is, we don't do adjust. this to make it easier so it's definitely not for the sake of our, right. be, our payroll would be far easier if we didn't use crypto right you know so we have Uh, so policy, every month example, you have to adjust basically uh, pretty much on the day of on, on the, the day, day of got it so our as an example of our policy you know we we close a payroll cycle which is about every half a month and we pay within five days of the close of the payroll cycle and we announce to the staff the day before that we're going to pay them the next day in between what hour they're going to get paid so that way they minimize the volatility and then as soon as they're paid we pay up to all the staff that you've you've received funds Got so it. that way if they want to sell you know to minimize volatility they can sell right away that's an entire process flow that we had to figure out and wouldn't have to deal with if we were paying for oh it. yeah it yeah, complicates exactly. things quite it totally, a bit it, t- it totally does although we've gotten used to it so it's a lot smoother for us now and then now we also know that if we were to grow the company and grow the product line what to build yeah we have we have insights that companies don't have yeah because of us using it you know and other companies are like, oh, just cut a paycheck as normal what's the feedback like have you Have you gotten any pushback from some employees? They love it. They, they do. Yeah. And maybe that's because, you know, we're a small team and most people love crypto in the first place. But for them, it's, it's a free acquisition of crypto. Like you normally have to pay fees to buy crypto. And right? for them, it's free. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you sell it, especially if you sell it for cash, you get a markup on it. People are willing to buy crypto at a markup. <clears throat> and so they can sell it at a few percent higher than they acquired it. You know, and, they're getting it at spot. How and, often, where can you buy crypto at spot? <laughs> and why, why just Bitcoin? Like, what if someone wants to get paid in Ether? Or- Admittedly, it was uh, mainly because our own application, um, at the time, Airbits only supported Bitcoin. And we were heavily dependent on our application for financial tracking. Um, our app, just to kind of rewind a little bit, you know, we encrypt private keys, data. Yeah. You know, he said like you can branch outside of cryptocurrency and do financial applications, docs, spreadsheets. Well, in our own app, every time you send a transaction, it actually saves a little bundle of encrypted data, which is the metadata of that transaction. What was the payment for? Who did it go to? What was the fiat value at the time of the transaction? Um, and some notes about it. So when we pay people or use Bitcoin, 
we tag all of that inside of the transaction and then we export that to financial software such as QuickBooks. So we're very dependent on it and no other app in the ecosystem lets us do that. And so um, before Edge existed, we couldn't do any other crypto because we didn't have that functionality. Admittedly, Edge exists now, but we just haven't made the switch. Because obviously, we'd also have to hold other cryptocurrencies to be able to pay people and balance out the volatility. Yeah. You know, so that, that introduces another level of complexity that I think we are actually will want to introduce eventually, um, just also for the understanding of what is it like to deal with multiple cryptocurrencies and what kind of software will you need to build when companies really do end up deploying an ecosystem that is multi-asset, multi-currency. Yeah. How do you deal with that in the QuickBooks, in the financial tracking software? So at one point, we'll at least incorporate one or two more as an option for people. Once again, to eat your own dog food, right? Is what we say in the US. Like really use what you're building and find what the hiccups are. But yeah. for now, we've just kind of continued on. And admittedly, we nearly, really, we really, really nearly did switch off of Bitcoin um, in 2017 when fees were quite high. And we had, we did have staff complain. Network fees. Network too. fees and delays. Like staff would complain that, yeah, we, I got my paycheck, but I can't cash it out. It's been a week. Wow. And the volatility wow. could kill them. Which right? again, to your point, illustrates some of the challenges it's that, challenges, yeah. you know, people faced back then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and me. that was, if we had edge at the time in 2017, edge was not launched. So we didn't support other currencies. If we had edge. We, we would have switched. You would have switched we, to we another currency. We would have at least given staff an op- option to switch to a different currency. Um, because you wouldn't really, switch to fiat. You would just switch to another, another currency. Yeah. yeah, another cryptocurrency. Um, and so uh, now we're more prepared. If that happens again, we will give staff that option because we think that, you know, the day that they are paid, they should have the option of being able to sell that and get locked. In Absolutely. That, that rate I mean, right they away. should get paid at that. Uh, exactly. And, you know, waiting a week for a confirmation Know, or, or paying fifty dollars to get one quickly, it just doesn't just doesn't cut it. You know, even for payments as high as a few thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it's in. We do it because we learned a lot from that that experience. It wasn't easy, but we have insights that are are very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So, just taking a step back, kind of mm-hmm. as we get towards the end of the interview. What are you excited about in crypto in general? You've been, you know, you've been in crypto since 2014 for a while now. What sort of like, you know, putting edge to the side for a second, like what sort of developments are you excited about in in the coming years? There's been actually a lot of talk, obviously, about decentralized exchanges and, you know, this being the year of the hasn't really materialized quite yet. Right, right. Um, Curious to get your uh, take. Since the advent of Ethereum and what I thought it could do and smart contracts, and a lot of people say, well, there's no point in this. You know, there's, there's all these other services that you know, you're not going to be able to compete with smart contracts compared to the centralized services that exist to do loans and whatnot. And so I've said, yes, it's going to be hard, but I think it's critically important that even though you have a decentralized money, if you have a, a fully centralized set of financial services on top of the money that in order for me to do any kind of financial service top of the money, I have to go to a centralized institution and give up ownership of my money. Then I think we, you lose a lot of the kind of non-custodial nature of crypto. And then you end up just going down the same path as gold, right? You just make it custodial and you just transmit it between counterparties. So I've always said that we need a layer on top of the money, the the financial services on top that are also non-custodial. And so I've, I've said that and wanted that to happen since 2016 
But only now, you know, with the tagline DeFi, is that really coming to fruition? Where we actually have services that architecturally can fully replace some of these centralized counterparties. Um, everything from like leveraged trading to interest-bearing accounts to loans, okay, asset-backed loans. All three of those are some of the hottest centralized accounts on uh, services on crypto today. And all three of those, you know, given more liquidity, can fully replace, be replaced with uh, DeFi, decentralized applications. Yeah, liquidity is really the issue right now. It right? Is. Not enough people are using There's it. There's not enough people using it. But on a technical level and on a user experience level, they really can fully replace it. You know, there's some things you still can't. Like it's hard to replace a, a non-asset backed loan where you've got a credit score and blah, blah, blah. Do I give you a loan or not? That not yet is, re- is easily replaceable because it'd be hard to build an oracle that would determine when you've, you know, how does it go after you when you haven't paid? You know, a smart contract can't go after you in the real world if you haven't paid. But from an asset backed loan point of view, yes, it can. <laughs> it just takes your asset. And it's doing exactly what, you know, a half a dozen fully centralized companies are doing. Yeah. Right. Much faster that, and at a much lower cost, right? Faster, lower cost. Um, and more importantly, accessible anywhere in the world. That to me is what yeah. it's accessible anywhere in the world, censorship resistant and doesn't compromise the holding of crypto and putting it into custodial services. So we have full control of our money the Absolutely. entire time. And, and that completes the loop to me. Now we've got base layer foundation, which is money. And then we've got the financial services on top of it, at least some of it for now. That's what's exciting me the most. Being able to, anywhere in the world, tap, I've got a loan. Anywhere in the world, tap, I've got an interest-bearing account. Anywhere in the world, tap, get leverage trading. Okay? Three, Forex leverage, which obviously, you know, BitMEX being biggest in the world at leverage trading. Why are they big? Especially at launch, very minimal to no KYC. But they're restricted in where they can operate. Well, guess what? Launch a DeFi app that gives you that technically can operate anywhere, right? There's really no one behind it, just other people on the, on the other side of that trade. Um, that's easily the thing that excites me the most. And hopefully bringing that to some of the bigger assets, obviously like Bitcoin, which is a bit more of a challenge due to its limited um, smart contract capability. You know, although there are products such as Rootstock, which are effectively giving smart contract capability to Bitcoin, you know, be able to almost copy and paste all of the... Uh, Ethereum smart contract right onto it. Yeah, but that's not really the use case for Bitcoin so much, right? Once that, again, Bitcoin's a money. You need financial services on top of you it. You build on top of that. So it, you, even if, um, so for example, one of the hottest services on Bitcoin is interest-bearing accounts you know, or asset-backed loans. <coughs> All those are fully centralized. Totally doable in Rootstock. Just have to copy and paste the code. And now it's it's not a technology problem, it's a marketing problem. So let people know that it's available and get enough liquidity so you have the traders on both sides. You do that, you replace um, about half a dozen you know, centralized services. That That's pretty exciting. And you can do it from anywhere. Oh, that's super exciting. It's super exciting. Uh, to see how that's going to you know, exactly. evolve over the coming years, for exactly. sure. I, I think that's why so many of us are so excited about this yeah. space. Right? Yeah. It's reinvigorated my excitement like to see that those those dApps come to fruition and actually working. And I know they're still experimental. They still can they can fail, which is why I think that's what's limiting the liquidity. It's still early and people are scared. It's super early. I mean, it's you look early. at the numbers. I mean, you know, there's barely any users at this yeah. point. But and to your point, technically, it's, it's already well, and technically, it's already working. Yeah, it's technically working, but it it's 
it, you know, people don't quite have the trust in it because it's so new. Yeah. Like for example, like stable coins, there's the GUSD, you know, uh, Tether, USDC, and then there's DAI. And admittedly, on a psychological level, I say to myself, like, I don't really like these custodial ones, right? But I, but this is how we've been operating in our world for the past 100 years, right? Those three, the GUSD, USDC, uh, Tether, are like 100-year-old techniques. Um, then there's DAI, which I love, but how much do I feel comfortable putting in it given that it's so young? But as that ages, every year that it doesn't die, <laughs> die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excuse the pun, <laughs> every year that it doesn't die, I feel comfortable putting a little bit more in there whenever I want to hedge out of Bitcoin, you know, into a dollar based coin, you know, and as it gets older and older, it just is like, all right, I feel good. I feel good. And more and more. That is probably the biggest adoption hindrance of these DeFi platforms is that they're just so technologically new. Yeah, of course, especially yeah. when you compare them to like, you know, legacy financial yeah, services like, that we used exactly. to using for decades now. You just think right? people, the, the Bitcoiners like, that say these DeFi things can't work. It's exactly the same as the bankers saying Bitcoin can't work, which is why people didn't put much money in Bitcoin early on. So Bitcoin had no value. Yeah. How many years before it had even the amount of value that is locked up in, in Maker? How long did that take? Yeah. Right. First to lock up that much value into Bitcoin. Took quite a while. So relatively speaking, I wish I should have gotten these numbers ahead of time. I think Maker achieved a, a market cap higher than Bitcoin faster than Bitcoin did. Yeah, that's always the case, right? right. You have the trailblazer, someone who kind of yeah. paves the way. It then... paves the way here for just generally speaking, you know, decentralized functionality. And then this uh, follower, even though it's a different use case and different program, still leverages some of the trust. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Ethereum, right? I mean, the, the trust of, of yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. it grew much faster, right? Once uh, it's exactly. launched in 2015. So, so I think you can't underestimate the power of these true, compelling products in the DeFi space. Um, and any arguments that say, oh, hardly any money is in there is like, oh, like you're, you're talking like a banker talking <laughs> about Bitcoin. You know, like don't don't use that same rhetoric that a banker would use on Bitcoin. Like, oh, there's not, no one's using it. Like, oh, it's growing, it's growing. <laughs> you know. Last question before we go, Paul. Um, how do you enjoy Tel Aviv? How do you enjoy the blockchain week here? It only started, we're recording this at the beginning of the week. I've had a great time and it makes me, I've, I've visited here last year once, so far this year once. And so I'd love to be on a, at minimum a, a once a year visit into the country, if not more often. Um, I feel like every, uh, every event I go to, uh, every place I go, uh, the energy, especially in the crypto world is, is heightened and elevated. And I always have incredibly engaging conversations with very passionate people in the space, both in the media side, you know, it's to some degree the investor side, then also the different partnership sides. I have two partners here in Israel. And so it's, uh, if it was easier to get to, I feel like I would be here far more often. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, pretty far from California. It, it's that's it's a bit sure. of a hike from California, but uh, I'd say it's one of the very few places where it's worth the hike by far. That's, yeah, that's right. a great note to end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it might inspire yeah. me to pick up a little bit of Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> it is very tough. I've heard it. It's it very like different. for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Tomer. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out.